Hi. <laughs> I just want to piggyback on what Kurt said. I'm so grateful that you guys are here this morning. I know that many of you probably wake up on a Sunday morning and you may even wrestle with whether or not you're going to go to church. But I promise you, every single one of you underestimates how much power you have when you just show up, how much you bless me or another pastor or other people. It's just wonderful that you guys all made a choice to be here today. And so thank you for that. I never want you to feel like you made a bad choice to show up to church. It's taken a step toward God. So good for you guys. As Kurt said, my name is Matt King. I'm one of the pastors here at East Point Church. And I'm very glad that you're here. And today I do get the honor of wrapping up this sermon series called The Signature of Jesus. What does that mean? What do we mean by that? It's been a while since we addressed that. So let me recap real quick. What does that mean? Try to think of a signature like an autograph. But instead, it, it means more. You see, when a person puts their signature on something, what they're doing is they're connecting their identity of who they are to their intent or something that they're prepared or planned or now committing to do. It's different than an autograph. An autograph is what famous people do, like Pastor Kurt Bubna, who writes the book Epic Grace, or Dr. Jeff Kennedy, who writes the book The Father, Son, and the Other One. And sometimes people stand up in lines and they come to them with their book or a T-shirt or maybe just on their arm and say, will you autograph this? And they're like, yeah, sure. So they do that. Now, what that might do is authenticate that book. It might make it really special to somebody. But it doesn't commit them to anything. It's not like they're contractually bound to perform or do anything. No, a signature, though, is different. It's different than an autograph. When a person signs their signature, it means that they're connecting their identity, who they are, to their intent. For instance, they sign a signature on a credit card statement that intends that they're going to pay that bill. When they sign the, the papers for the loan for their house or for school, they're intending to pay for that. They themselves, their identity is responsible for that. Or when they sign even something like a marriage certificate, they are binding themselves to something. And so a signature is different than an autograph. That's why we call it the signature of Jesus because what we've been talking about is what did Jesus connect his identity to in terms of his intent? And so, the signature of Jesus. That's what we've been talking about all of this time throughout the course of these weeks. And he's right. We do have, or I do have this blessing today to be able to recap this sermon series. And how we've been doing this, if you're new with us today or maybe you've missed some weeks, is we've been asking everybody to go through the entire book of Mark or the entire gospel of Mark and we've been reading one chapter at a time and there's a total of 16 chapters and so today I'm kind of taking verse or chapters 15 and 16 and kind of lumping them all together and doing a little bit of a summary recap of everything that's been going on here now before I go any further let me tell you what our main goal and our focus has been our main goal and our main focus has been this we want people regardless of whether or not you are you know old in the faith or maybe not even in the faith yet to see Jesus differently than maybe what you've ever seen him before. And then to give your life to him, love him. That's really what we've been hoping for. And maybe there are some people who are in here today, or maybe there are some people who are watching or are listening online. And it is our desire, it truly is our desire that you would be changed just by hearing some of the stuff maybe today 
that God has done for you. And so I'm proud to say that this sermon series has been amazing. It's been a very impactful sermon series. In fact, let me share a couple of numbers or details with you. Since we started this sermon series, there has been 85 new believer packets like this that have been picked up after the services. 85 of them. That's a lot. Yeah, I think that's great. A lot of that's you. Some of that's you. Um, We've also had, last week on Mother's Day, we had 19 baptisms. And that's after three weeks ago when when Easter was here. We had over 1,000 people make some form of a decision for Christ as they got up and walked across the stage on that bridge. This has been a very, very impactful sermon series on on you, on a lot of you, certainly on me. And so today I'm going to wrap it up. And the title of this sermon is this, What Did He Do for Love? What did he do for love? I think it's a great question. Here's why I think it's a great question. We live, all of us, we live in a culture, we live in a society, we live in a community here where oftentimes the prevailing thought or the general attitude is, what have you done for me lately? We do that. We do that with God, too. We get that way with God. There are many of us who have had this kind of an attitude, an attitude of ungratitude, maybe you could call it. In fact, it comes across sometimes as complaining. Did you know that complaining is one of the first signs of pride, by the way? It is. You know, God can give us eyes that see, but there are some of us who complain about having allergies. Anybody besides me? There are some of us Looking around the room here, most of us have been blessed with limbs that work. But how many have complained about having sore muscles after working in the yard all day long? How about kids? You know what? To be able to hear the voices of your children, to be able to, to kiss their heads, smell the smell of their hair, their skin, That is a blessing, especially when they're babies. But how many besides me have complained about children, tempted to sell them on eBay? (laughs) Can I get an amen? Amen. God has blessed us sometimes with some really stupid, cool, and amazing stuff. And then what do we do? We turn around and we're like, ah, complain, complain, complain. What have you done for me lately? Fix my kid. Fix my muscles. Fix my eyes. We do that. And it's been that way since the very beginning, hasn't it? I mean, you think about it, you go back to the story of the Garden of Eden. If you're not familiar with it, let me give you a quick little snapshot. Here's Adam and Eve, and they've got this beautiful, vast paradise garden environment. And it's been created for them so that they can frolic in it and run and play, and they're nude. I don't say that because I'm trying to be dirty here. What I'm trying to say is, is this. God does all this work for them, and he's created all these things for them. There's so much stuff that could have kept their mind preoccupied with all the blessings of God. Stuff that they could have been looking at and going, man, whoa, evidence God loves me. Oh, look, more evidence God loves me. But the one thing, the one thing, the one thing that God said they couldn't have, they put their focus on it, and they're like, what have you done for me lately? Nothing. It happens, doesn't it? It's happened since the very beginning, and it happens with us. And when we get into that kind of a thinking, what have you done for me lately? That complaining, 
what happens? We drift. We walk away. We turn away. We become sometimes even useless in the plan or really the program that God has designed for us, the thing that God wants us to do. We've been told that in this Bible, that God has stuff that he would like for us to do, stuff that represents him. When we get into that attitude and we start that ugly slide, that ugly drift, well, you can kiss goodbye doing anything of value for God. It's hard to even represent him. Last week, if you were here with us, Kurt started talking about that. In fact, he had mentioned in preaching out of Mark chapter 14 how Peter had failed when he had this major opportunity. In fact, he had just shortly beforehand had proclaimed, yeah, Jesus, I'll die for you. Yeah, I'll I'll die. I'm going to do that if that's what it takes. And then not too long later, after Jesus had told him, no, you won't. Sure enough, he totally failed. He denied that he even knew Jesus, cursing himself if he was lying. He talked about that. And then Kurt went on and talked about how quite a few years ago, in a situation where he had the opportunity to be able to represent God, he didn't. In fact, he just totally blended in and looked like the rest of the, the world, blending in with their behaviors and their customs. He talked about that. He talked about that pride. He talked about the loss of identity. He talked about fear, those three things last week. So what am I going to do today? I want to talk about how we can stop that drift. I want to talk about how we can keep that question in the focus of our mind. What did he do for love? What did he do for love? If we can keep an answer close at mind, it will help us from drifting. It'll help us to keep from sliding and getting into that place where we don't represent God or even see the opportunities when they come. So I want to tell you how I try to do that, and this is the truth, every single day, every single day, multiple times throughout the course of the day, I am reminding myself of this, who, what, why, who, what, why, who, what, why, who, what, why, all the time, who, what, why, who, what, why, who, what, why. What do I mean by that? Let me start with the who. Who? What do I mean by the who? Who Jesus is slash was. That's the first thing I remind myself multiple times throughout the course of a day. When I get to this place where I start to complain, where I get to this place where I start to feel the attitude creeping into my mind, the complaint starts to form inside of it. What have you done for me lately? I remind myself who Jesus is slash was. And while I'm doing that, kind of the side benefit to it is, is I'm also reminding myself who I'm not. Let me explain what I mean by that and why this is so important. You see, I believe that for all of us here, if we're really going to understand the what and the why, we do have to understand the who first, who Jesus is. Who he is will help us to really, truly understand the what and the why. So here's here's how I'm going to do this. We've been going through the entire book of Mark. If you've read that with us, awesome. But I want to recap something, and it's from another fellow by the name of Paul who wrote this. It's a much shorter thing than reading the whole entire book of Mark to you. Paul, if you don't know him, you're not familiar with him, he was a pretty important fellow back there in that day when the church was just getting started and starting to expand and grow into all these other communities. He wrote quite a bit of the New Testament. He was one of the apostles. Jesus personally had entrusted a lot of information to him and then tasked him with a big, huge responsibility. So Paul started writing to all these churches. Here's something that he wrote in the book of Colossians. If you have a Bible with you or you have a Bible app that you can get to real quick, do that right now. Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 15 and 17. And if you want to keep it there, I'm going to be going back into Colossians a little bit later on. But let me read to you this summary of Paul's about who Jesus is, starting in verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1. 
Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Okay, so there's the summary of it. What does that mean? Jesus is God. That's what he's saying. If you guys read through Mark with us, you probably noticed that right at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, all the way through chapter 6, chapter 7, Mark continues to display all this information, writing down all this information about the things that Jesus did that proved that he was God. Over and over and over again, that culture and that community who had all kinds of strange beliefs, just like we do, apparently needed to see something of importance that would make them believe that Jesus was God. So as a result, what did he do? He showed power over things like weather or nature, stopping rain, stopping storms, big deal, big deal. He also showed power over things like evil, casting out evil spirits, telling them to be quiet, literally making them shut up. He also showed power over things like physics, disease, even death. I mean, who does that stuff? Jesus does. He's God. Mark was trying to point that out right there at the very beginning. So what does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? Let me tell you what that means to me. Jesus is God. He's all-knowing. He's omnipotent. Just the all-knowing thing for a second. You know, we're not all-knowing, not even about ourselves. But there are so many of us who consider ourselves to be the expert on what's best for us. Right? When we remind ourselves of who Jesus is and who we're not, we have to remember that God knows us better than what we do. He knows what's best for us. He really does. It's not a game. He knows what's best for us. We can trust that. If we know who Jesus is and we remind ourselves who he is and who we are not, we will see that God cares for us. So what does that mean? It means because he knows us intimately, he knows exactly how to deal with each and every one of you the way that you need to be dealt with. He also knows how not to deal with you, how not to deal with me. That's cool. That's a really important thing. We are told that God, if you were to really look through and read this entire Bible, here's one of the things that you would know, that God knows every intimate detail about you. It says that he even knows down to those silly things like how many hairs are on your head. He knows you. Who, who, what, why, who, what, why, who, what, why, who Jesus is, reminding myself all the time about the fact that he is indeed all-powerful. He is God. He speaks, and literally all matter obeys. It must, because God has spoken. That's a big deal to remind ourselves who Jesus is. So again, I point that out because it's so important for any of us if we're going to not drift. We're going to have to remember that, who he is and who we're not. Jesus is God. I'm not. So that's the who. What about the what? Well, to go over the description or the whole entire thing about what Jesus did would honestly take a long, 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 long time. We've been trying to unpack what Jesus has done ever since Jesus did it. 
and is still continuing to do it. And so thousands of years, pastors have been sitting on stools or preaching in fields, trying to convey a message about what God has done. So I want to talk about just a few things and allow for everybody to continue to expand and learn those things on their own, on their own time. But let me talk about a few of those things. First of all, the very first thing that Jesus had to do, the what, Paul describes in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, uh, two verses 6 through 8. Now, again, this is just the beginning of what Jesus did, or the what that he did for love. Let me read this to you, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his, his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So let me explain why this is so important. You see, the first thing that God figured was the best thing for him to do, the what, was to actually remove himself from that throne and become one of us. Why is that important? See, when you're the person who sits on the throne, all the work that gets done is being done for you. You don't do the work. You have slaves and subjects and servants who do that. And what Jesus said is, is, oh, well, if I'm going to ask you to do that, if I'm going to ask you to surrender your entire life and everything over to God, I'll do it. I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do. So what does he do? He gets down off the throne. He divests himself of all of the divine privileges and be, basically becomes a bonehead like you and I. And then attempts to navigate through life doing exactly what it is that God would want him to do. Obedience. And he disciplines himself over and over and over again to do that. Why? So that, one, he would give us this beautiful example of what does it really look like to be the kind of individual who lives their life lovingly for the Father and lovingly for others. We need to know what that is. Many of us are students, but we need to see the example of what it's supposed to look like. And so Jesus said, I'll do that. But the other thing that he wanted to do was this beautiful work of spreading the gospel, the good news, work. He wanted to help all of us understand work. In fact, I love Mark's perspective. If you read through that book with us, you saw that Mark writes that Jesus is working all the time. That dude is walking all over the place, if you haven't noticed that. Down to Jerusalem, up to Galilee, back down past Jerusalem, all around the surrounding areas, back to Galilee, back to Jerusalem, all again. He's walking all over the place. And what's he doing? He's explaining things to people. He's teaching people. He's teaching people in fields. He's teaching people in synagogues. He's teaching people outside of the temple. Constantly working, working, working. Helping people to understand what does a relationship with God really supposed to look like as opposed to what they were being shown by the Pharisees, as opposed to what they were being shown by the Sadducees, as opposed to what they were being shown by the religious leaders and the priests. Jesus came in, turned the whole thing over, and gave everybody a whole new example of what, how and what it's supposed to look like. And this was his work. This was his job. And he lived it out, not 
just to show us an example, but to show what God, what Jesus was committed to, what he had placed his signature on. You see, Jesus was walking around, and while he was washing the feet of his disciples and explaining why, and why he was confronting the religious leaders and explaining why, and why he was hanging out with the scumbags of the earth and explaining why, he was working, spreading this gospel, spreading this good news about who God is and what a relationship with him is supposed to really look like. In fact, Paul, going back to that passage in Colossians 1, this time in verse 19, he gives an explanation of some work that Jesus did. And it's kind of a a spiritual explanation of it. And I want to read this to you and have you listen again. And I want you to listen for all the work that Jesus did. And then I want you to listen for the work that we have done. Here it is. Colossians 1, verse 19 through 23. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you, who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. I want to read just that, those two sentences, one more time, then continue on. You were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. When I read this passage, here's what I see. God did all the work. He did the reconciling. He did the bleeding and the dying. He did the cleaning up. He did the removing of all this blame. He did the removing of all this fault. He even did the bringing of us into his presence. God did all the work. And so when you find yourself in a situation where you begin to form a complaint inside of your head about anything, remind yourself of the who. Who is God and who is not? Who is Jesus? What does does that really mean to me? And then the what. What did he do? He did everything. There isn't anything that he didn't do for love. All of the work that has been done in order to make love possible has been done by God. In fact, the only thing that you and I are connected to in this passage that I just read is evil thoughts and evil actions before giving us this encouragement to not drift away from believing in what the work is that Jesus did. What did Jesus do for love? What did he do for love? Everything. Everything. If we remind ourselves all the time of the who, what, why, who, what, why, who, what, why, who Jesus is, who I am not. Jesus is God. He is all-knowing. He is the one that understands my life. He is the one that has got a plan for me that is better than anything I could possibly think of. And he loves me. He's done everything to prove that he loves me. He came to become a person like me. He lived a perfect, sinless life so that he could offer his purity in exchange for my crimes against God. 
And in exchange for your crimes against God, and as a direct result, he takes all the sin and we go free. He did everything for love. Everything. The whole reason why we've been talking in this sermon series is that people would understand that Jesus didn't just spin this world into existence and then write his autograph on it. Jesus was here! And then just walk away. No, he put a signature on it, which connected his identity as God to his intent to rescue, redeem, and restore this world and all the evil people in it. It's a signature, not an autograph. And Mark and every other writer of the New Testament expresses the same thing, that Jesus takes our place because he loves us. He loves us. He loves us. What did he do for love? Everything. So what do I do all the time? All the time. Who Jesus is. Who, what, why. Who Jesus is. He's God. I'm not. What did he do for love? Everything. Everything. There isn't anything that he hasn't done for love. He's done it for me. And then the last thing is the why. And this why is a little bit different. Not the why did he do it. We know that. He loves us. But the why I live for him. I remember the who. Jesus is God and I am not. I remember the what. What did he do for love? He did everything for love. What did he do for me? Everything for me. He made my life worth living. So why? The last thing that I think on the why is why I should live for God. Why when I'm going through a particular circumstance or a situation that seems like it's a great one to complain about, why I put my attention back at God and ask myself the question, what is God trying to do here? He's not trying to hurt me. He's not trying to punish me. He's trying to help me. There's something that I can learn through this. The why. The why. I want to read to you this verse, and this time I'm going to have you read it along with me. This is in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And uh, in closing, I'm going to explain and unpack this a little bit. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. See, why I live for God is because I love him. Why I love him is because he has he's changed my life. He's completely changed my life. And how he's done that is by changing the way that I think. Changing the way that I think about you. Changing the way I think about community and people. Changing the way I think about the people that I could complain about. You know, it's hard to find somebody who's willing to serve you the way you want to be served and when you want to be served, isn't it? It is. So when I find myself in situations like that, I remind myself, who, what? Why? Be careful about pride. Be, f be careful about forming that complaint. Don't forget you are a part of the family of God and you are always going to be welcome in it whether or not you want to be or not. Jesus was our living sacrifice and now he's asked us to be. 
and this plea and this appeal that goes out by Paul to us, to all the Christians, is that because of what he has done for us, we would be willing to offer ourselves over to God as a living sacrifice and follow the model and example that Jesus gave to us as he came and became a living sacrifice for us. And why is this so important? We are told that this community that we live in and this entire world that we live in wants to know whether or not God is real and are looking for his proof. And the best proof that anybody will see is when you and I allow God to write his signature on us and it becomes known and it becomes seen and then people witness that in us. How do they witness that in us? When they see that our behaviors are different than the rest of the world. When they see that the customs, when they see that the things that the world will do whenever it gets pressured, whenever it gets stressed, whenever it decides to complain about something, which typically is the first sign of pride, what they should see in us are a group of people who have been changed because we think differently. And so I encourage you. For those of you who make up that 85 people who picked up a new believer packet, for those of you who comprise those 19 people who got baptized, for those of you who were a part of that 1,000 plus who got up and made some type of a decision for Jesus Christ, got up and walked across the stage, crossed down, went down to the other side, let that stick. Don't drift away. Don't drift away. Remember who, what, why. And be that signature of Jesus wherever you go. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these people. Thank you for the ones that are here. Thank you for the ones that are at home. We're going to be listening to this and watching this and maybe sharing this video with somebody. Father, I pray that you would do what I can't do. In fact, I need you to do what nobody else can do. Lord, I need you to speak directly into the souls and into the hearts of every person here and say to them what it is that you need to say. I know, Lord, that sometimes when you speak into a heart, it brings conviction, and it does bring guilt. We are told that your Holy Spirit has been sent to us for that reason, to convict the world of sin. If that's what people need in this room today, Lord, I pray that you do that. If there are people who need to be encouraged, God, I pray that you would do that. Help them to understand. Lord, I pray that every single person in this room would understand this, that if none of us ever did another thing for you for the rest of our lives, you wouldn't love us less. Help all of us to know that if we filled every single day of the rest of our lives doing awesome stuff for you, you wouldn't love us more. Your love for us is not based upon what we do, it's based upon who you are and the fact that you made us and created us as children and in spite of the fact that some of us are just like our own kids and that you could complain about us, you don't. Instead, what you do is you love us anyway and you're patient and you're careful and you know us and you know how to speak to us. And so I, I pray that you'd speak to all of us now and that every person in here who knows you and loves you, may they be encouraged to stay the course and to let your signature be seen on them. And for those who are here or maybe watching online and they don't know you, if that's you and you're listening right now and you're thinking, I want a relationship with God, I just don't know what to do. I'm going to offer a simple prayer and 
You can make this prayer exactly word for word your own. Just quietly mouth these words to yourself or say them in your soul. Or you can change them. It doesn't matter. Or you can remember them and say them later. It doesn't matter. What's important is that if you are ready for your life to be something that God brings value to and changes it, takes over it, and makes you into the kind of person who becomes a bearer of his signature, then listen to these words. Father, I give up, I surrender, I give you my life, what's left of it. And I ask that you do something in it. I ask that you change it. If, if that means you fill me with you or whatever that is, then please do that. If it means that you, you forgive me of all my sin and take away this shame, take away this hatred and loathing that I have for myself, take away my fears, take away this idea that I've got to be somebody in somebody else's eyes and fill it instead with his desire to just be somebody in your eyes. I, I give up. I give you my life. Take me. Take me. If that's you, maybe even right now you are feeling this sensation of God's Holy Spirit filling you up, identifying you, sealing you. That's what we're told he does. Maybe you're feeling that right now. Father, I know what all of us should be feeling is a desire to make the words of all those songs that we sang earlier today actually mean something. Father, I pray that you would make us aware of your presence. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to sing through this last song as an act of worship. Make these words a prayer if you want. We're also going to, in an act of worship, give. For those of you who regularly attend this church, you know that the only reason we make it is because you give. So we're going to ask you to do that. And then afterwards, I'm going to come back up and say a few words, and then we'll be dismissed. So right now, let's worship and give. What did he do for love? He did everything. Everything. So I'm asking you guys today to remember the who, what, why. Today, if you made that prayer your own, I'm going to ask you to grab one of these new believer packets. We've got them at each one of the doors. And when you grab that and you open that up, there's some stuff in there to help you get started on a walk of faith, but it's certainly not enough. I'm asking you to tell somebody, tell me, tell another pastor, tell a mom, dad, brother, friend, somebody. Tell them that you have made a decision for Christ and let that begin to work inside of your soul. Today, if you would like prayer, instead of making your way out and on with your day, make your way forward. We'll have some people up here to love to pray with you. Also, if you'd like to take communion today, if you'd like to just take a moment and have that small ceremony with you or his family, we got it available on both sides of the room. Please do that. Guys, I want to also invite you to come back next week. It's Memorial Day weekend. There's a lot that goes on on Memorial Day weekend. I know so many of you are planning on heading out of town and, and enjoying and visiting and doing all kinds of camp and stuff like that. Make next week a priority to be here. I promise you, you will not regret it. Love you guys. Hope to see you this next week.